Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and we have an exciting episode for you this week. But before we start, we need to spend a few minutes in Dr. Art Carden's economic imagination. Hi, this is Art Carden from Sanford University's Brock School of Business. If you watch football, you might watch it on Saturday when the players don't get paid. You might also watch it on Sunday when the players do get paid. What gives? And should the players who are playing for the University of Alabama, Clemson University, the Ohio State University, University of Michigan actually be paid? We'll discuss this a little bit later in the episode. Today, I have Mike Munger with me to talk about his newest book. Mike Munger is professor in the Department of Political Science and the Department of Economics at Duke University, and he is the author of Tomorrow 3.0, Transaction Costs and the Sharing Economy. And that's what he's here to talk with us about today. Thanks for joining us, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm a longtime listener of Econ Talk, and you are a longtime guest of Econ Talk, and so it's no wonder that I heard about your book on Econ Talk, the very popular podcast. And uh, it was a few months ago, and I would say that once I realized, oh gosh, it was just a few minutes in, that your analysis of what was going on in the sharing economy, as it's commonly called, uh, was it went far deeper than what most people's examination and explanation for it. You know, people think, oh, well, there's just unused seats in an in somebody's car and therefore Uber helps people fill those seats and it reduces, you know, it reduces pollution or does all these things that, you know, we all think sharing is great, especially when we can do it to mutual advantage. But your analysis actually went a whole lot deeper. But before we get into some of the, the details, it would be nice if we heard a little bit of the story of how, like, why did you write about this? Like what, what prompted this writing? I started doing econ talk podcasts in 2006 and somewhere around 2013, I did a podcast with Russ Roberts where we talked a little bit about the sharing economy. And you have to realize those people who are fans of econ talk normally on econ talk, what Russ does is call someone who has written something or done something. The reason that I've been on the show so much is that I'm Ed McMahon to his Johnny Carson. So when Ed, <laughs> when, when Ed, when, uh, Russ wants to say something, he'll call me and say, here's what we're going to talk about. And it gives uh, him an excuse okay. to talk about what he wants to talk about without, without doing a podcast by himself, which seems boring. So he asked me some questions about the sharing economy, and we talked about it, and I realized I did not understand it. And in fact, the way that you set this up is almost perfect. The reason that the book goes deeper is that when Russ started asking me these questions and I gave the answers, well, you know, there's extra seats, that, that's not actually quite right. There has to be a more uh, economic sort of answer to this. And I have to say that one of the reasons that it was a natural thing for me to work on was I was a student of Douglas North, the Nobel Prize winner in economics in 1993. In 1984, when I was finishing my thesis, 
uh, you have a thesis defense, which is a very scary thing to do because, you know, you're hoping to, to finish your thesis and get your PhD. So it's a, a public defense. At this defense, Doug North asked me a question and I was nervous. I, I went to the board and started drawing equations and muttering, which is what economists do when they don't know the answer. It's also what they do when they do know the answer, I should say. But we, when they don't know the answer, they go and uh, start writing equations on the board. And after two or three minutes, mercifully, Doug raised his hand and he said in a voice that you might use to address a not very bright but still well-loved child, Michael, the answer is transaction costs. The only Question, the only answer I was looking for was transaction costs. And I later realized that it didn't matter what the question was from Doug North. The answer is transaction costs. And when I thought about it more, I realized that he's right. And that when you think in terms of transaction cost, it changes the way that you think about economics. And that's actually the key to puzzling your way through what looks like an economic revolution. In many ways, this is similar to previous economic revolutions because most economic institutions have to do with managing transaction costs. Well, and I think the the benefit of the book wasn't just that you talk about things, you know, Uber is going to be just the sort of a stand in for the sharing economy because it's so popular. But like you're not just talking about the sharing economy in your book. You're you're teaching economics. Uh, you have plenty to say that sort of gives an analysis of where the economy is heading uh, by virtue of the title. Tomorrow 3.0, uh, there's got to be a 1.0 and a 2.0 implicit in that. And of course, you do talk about that in a book. Could you give us a little like intro to what were the two? Because I don't even know if the episode that you had with Russ a few months ago explained them or maybe I wasn't paying attention as closely as I should have. But uh, I was that's one of the biggest reasons I bought the book. I'm like, there's what's 1.0 and 2.0. <laughs> Uh, that we, we tried to make both the title and the cover of the book as provocative as possible. I do want people to buy it. So the reason I called it 3.0 is that I claim we're on the verge of the third great economic revolution. And when we think in terms of human history, for most of the evolutionary process or Maybe you could just say the historical process in which we see the early books of the Bible having been written out, regardless of your position on evolution. The 5,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago, many people live pastoral lives of essentially hunter-gatherers, roaming flocks, maybe a few domesticated animals, but not much fixed agriculture. And then there was the first great economic revolution somewhere around 8,000 years ago, which uh, anthropologists called the Neolithic Revolution. Other people call it the Agricultural Revolution. People went from moving around and living in pretty small communal bands or clans into living in much larger groups. We wouldn't call them cities, but something like towns or city-states, that is, uh, walled off fortified areas to protect them against bandits. And around those uh, cities, they would plant crops. So you get the domestication of crops, you get the beginning of learning about metal, you get the beginning of writing because you have to have accounting systems and communication systems because you can't communicate everything verbally. So that first great economic revolution was the move to fixed agriculture. And one of the interesting things about that, and this is something I emphasize a lot in the book, economic revolutions don't care what we think of them. 
Was the Neolithic Revolution good for humanity? Well, if you look at it, the result was that most people, the average person shrunk by about 20% in size because they weren't getting as good nutrition. Hunter-gatherers were the original locavores. They would walk around or maybe even go in small boats or coracles and find whatever fish, whatever vegetables were fresh, whatever things that they could get that were in season, and they would eat those. And when they ran out of that, they would move somewhere else. If you're engaged in fixed agriculture, you have to find a way to store stuff, which always damages its nutritional value, and you have a relatively less rich palate of foods to choose from. So the result is that people's average size shrunk by 20%, their lifespan shrunk by 20 to 30%, and they're living in settings where the kind of food that they were eating was not nearly as good for them, so their teeth were ground down. Why would anybody have tolerated this? And the answer is transaction costs, that the Neolithic Revolution gave groups of people to expand the size of the population meant that there are economies of scale in uh, military and in organizing division of labor in cities. So one of the basics of economics, and your listeners who have ever thought about economics know that the basis of wealth is exchange. If I have something that you want and you have something that I want and we exchange, we're both better off. Now, in a static sense, that's not going to accomplish much. The action comes from division of labor. And Adam Smith recognized this, but in fact, the Neolithic Revolution rec recognized it. If you specialize in making uh, spear points, and I specialize in making shoes, and other people specialize in growing food, we all can have more of that stuff than we would have had if we each tried to live just on our own. Now, the disadvantage is that we'd have to live in large groups called cities for military reasons, but there's a thousand times as many people. The population of the world expanded very, very rapidly. So the, the answer to the question, the short answer to the question, why is it that people tolerated this? Individuals were probably worse off, but in military terms, cities became so much stronger and you get a thousand times as many people because we can support more people because of the use of division of labor. Well, the result is within a hundred generations or so, a thousand years, the result is that we started learning more about metal. We learned more about clothing. We learned about art. We have written language. Life started to get better. So the Neolithic Revolution took a long time to start to make people's lives better, but at some point it became irresistible. And so the hunter-gatherers that didn't have metal, that didn't have any understanding of military organization, of writing, couldn't resist the large organized city-states. The second great economic revolution was also about division of labor, and it's the one that you've probably thought more about in terms of division of labor because it's the one described by Adam Smith. It was the Industrial Revolution, and Adam Smith talks about the example of the pin factory. Adam Smith says that at that time there were about 18 different operations in the making of pins that you could find people engaging in in a pin factory. Now, consider two different ways of making pins. One, you have 18 individual artisans, all of whom make pins, and they perform all of the different operations. 
Well, in a given day, given that you'd have to constantly switch between tasks, so you you start with a pin, you draw out the wire, you cut it, you sharpen one end, you put a head on it, you put it in paper, you put it in a box, you do all those things one pin at a time, you might be able to make a few hundred pins in a day. But if you have one factory with 18 steps and all of these 18 people are working together on separate steps, two things happen. One, there's less time lost in changing between operations. Second, I become better at it and I develop tool use. So I develop dexterity and I develop specialized tools because I'm doing the same task over and over again. The result is an enormous increase. 18 people in one factory can make a hundred or a thousand times as many pins as 18 people in 18 different factories. But the result is we have a lot of pins now. We don't have any food. We don't have any clothing. We have to depend on someone else to specialize in producing those things, also using division of labor. But if I specialize in pins, you specialize in clothing, somebody else makes shoes, somebody else makes food, Again, we get an enormous increase in the size of the population that can be supported. And Adam Smith also talks about a, an interesting example that he calls the woolen coat. So the, the example of the woolen coat is, and if you were to take your jacket out from the closet and look at it, it is a bunch of really complicated different parts that were assembled or made in different places and then put together. The people who made the separate parts never met each other. But the result was that they put together a coat that was better than the quality of clothing that a king could have had in 1600. So by 1850, you have clothing that are be it's being worn by common people that's of higher quality than kings would have had in 1600. Everyone was made ultimately better off, even though the initial stages of the Industrial Revolution, like the Neolithic Revolution, were extremely disruptive. You needed some source of money income. So if I live in a village and we're used to exchanging and sharing, but now my neighbor can sell that mutton, that sheep meat, in the city for money, he's probably going to do that. I need some source of money income in order to participate in the new market economy after the Industrial Revolution. So traditional ways of relating to each other, of having family and village culture, all of those things are disrupted and destroyed. The eventual result was we get things like the woolen coat. We're probably better off. But something is also lost. The thing is that economic revolutions don't care whether we like them or not. And that's the context I wanted to give for the third great economic revolution, which I call the transactions cost or sharing economy, middleman revolution. And that is the economic logic of this is going to drive it regardless of whether we think it's a good thing or not. It's the economic logic of transactions cost that is driving the process. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that you point out, I think, in the book is that the second revolution and the ability to do the kind of pin factory method wouldn't have been able to happen had the first economic revolution not happened because sure. you didn't have population concentration. Right. We, did, we didn't have basic metallurgy. We didn't have the knowledge of how to domesticate animals. So, yes, it's dependent. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, you, you say throughout the book is people don't really want stuff. They want to have possession of the stuff of what the stuff provides. You know, you use the example of a drill. You don't really want a drill. You want a hole in a wall right now. And and of course, the tool to do it. Um, so 
I <laughs> is it, it's interesting to me because I felt like you kept trying to take away my power tools throughout the book <laughs> because I like my power tools. They I give, would never do that. In fact, <laughs> I would be afraid to take away your power tools. Uh, yeah. So why is it that in theory or maybe inevitably uh, my kid or grandkid will maybe never own a power tool or maybe a mower or any of those kinds of things? Well, I have two sons, 29 and 27, and they don't own power tools and they very rarely use power tools. Uh, they may have a car, but they don't own houses. And a lot of times they would just as soon not have stuff that ties them down. Old people tend to like stuff and people who live in the country that have plenty of space don't mind having stuff. But people who live in cities who have storage problems you have to recognize that if you're storing something, you're actually paying for it twice. First, you're paying for this highly specialized asset that only has a few uses. And then because you don't use it all the time, you have to pay to store it. If there were some way of acquiring it that didn't require you to have all of the money tied up in these tools and that didn't require you to store them, a lot of people would choose to do that. And in fact, that's the way that the world worked until 200 years or so ago. Stuff used to be pretty expensive. Tools and metal were pretty expensive. So the blacksmith might have a number of tools. Somebody who needs a hammer or some kind of specialized metal tool would go to the blacksmith and borrow it or rent it. We, we, it wasn't true that people had all of these tools at their disposal because the tools were too valuable. Now, we have been in a position where we make stuff and store it because it has been cheaper to do that. And when you think about it, when I say what people want is a hole in the wall, not a drill, last night I was installing a new vent for the clothes dryer. Our clothes dryer, the, the vent hose was all full of dust and lint, so I took it apart. And then I looked at the external vent, and it was all clogged up. So I took it out. I put a new one in, and I needed to put two screws into that the mm -hmm. new uh, vent to be able to hold it. I know this repair all too well. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very hard. And the reason it wasn't very hard was I went into my garage. I got my really excellent power drill that's battery powered, and I put two little tiny screws into the the vent and then put the drill back where it belonged. It took a little bit less than 30 seconds of actual use of the drill, but there was really nothing else I could have used to do that. And it would have been pretty inconvenient for me to say, you know, I don't have a drill, I'm going to rent one. Because I would have then had to go, maybe it, this was 10 o'clock at night. I would have had to go the next day to some rental place, pay for the drill, put down a deposit, drive home, use the drill for 30 seconds, drive back and put give the drill back to the rental place. There's no way that rental is better than ownership under those circumstances. The thing is, in tomorrow 3.0, it will be. It will be much, much easier, particularly for people who live in cities, to be able to rent stuff instead of to uh, – own them and have to store them. And so that's the, the reason that I chose the drill example is that it's a bit too far. That was a drill joke. <laughs> it, 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 it does go a bit too far because the it's hard to imagine a situation where renting a drill is going to be easier than owning it. But 
for most of us, if you're going to put new cement, you have a broken sidewalk, you're going to put in new cement, you're likely either to pay someone else to do it or rent one of those small cement mixers. You don't use it often enough to own it. Many construction companies, rather than own equipment, will rent it just for the duration of the job because you get more intensive use. So the, I think that sort of wholesale rental is going to move to the retail level where people like me for many tools are going to rent rather than own. Hi, it's me again, Art Carden. Earlier, I asked about paying college football players. And the question is, should we pay the players in major revenue college sports like college football and like college basketball? I think the answer is a pretty clear yes. Now, the players are compensated in that they get tuition waivers and they get housing and they get meals and they get coaching and athletic training and things like that. But this often comes far short of the value that they produce for their institutions. And what value do they produce for their institutions? Well, they produce a lot of money. They produce a lot of money in the form of TV revenue and ticket revenue and publicity and exposure and jersey sales and things of that nature. And it seems like everybody gets paid. The coaches get paid. The administrators get paid, the athletic director gets paid, everyone gets paid except for the players. And indeed, I think this is something that we should probably change. The NCAA should change its rule and allow member institutions to pay the players what they're worth. And in so doing, compensate them for the service that they provide to the university. This would do a couple of things. First, I think it would provide more substantial incomes for the people who are, who are doing the job on the field. Second, I think it would get rid of all the recruiting scandals and things like that that we occasionally see in big-time college athletics. Now, I'd like to think that I appreciate the amateur ideal as much as anybody. And there's an awful lot to be said for someone playing just for the sake of the pure love of the game. But it bothers me just a little bit that the players who are playing for the University of Alabama, who are playing for Clemson, who are playing for all these big-time schools, are producing millions of dollars in revenue and generating multi-million dollar salaries for their coaches and only being paid, quote-unquote, a fraction of that in the form of tuition waivers and things like that. Should college athletes be paid? I think the answer is a pretty clear yes. If you want to start thinking more like an economist, visit libertarianchristians.com slash artcarden. And now, back to the episode. That was a funny joke. I like it a lot. One of the, fun one of the funniest uh, things that I remember from reading your book is that you, you talk about drills. Drill, I can imagine a world where renting a drill could be pretty, in, uh, pretty efficient uh, in the future. But there are certain things that I'm probably not going to rent and probably, you know, never. I'm not going to rent, you know, maybe not my dishes or, you know, like a beer mug or something like that. And uh, or even like something like a toothbrush, which is something very personal, except in your book, you in the sentence of sort of predicting, I could just tell you're an economist. You you left room in the way you worded your sentence on, you know what, maybe I shouldn't completely rule out that we might rent toothbrushes in the future. Well, you raise an interesting point. Rental is only one of the ways of sharing. And one of the reasons I'm glad that I left that wiggle room, although that was just experience, I've been wrong so many times, I leave, <laughs> I leave wiggle room. Well, I think it's good. You, you're pushing the limits and you're pushing the readers to think this isn't just about the things we can imagine happening in the next year or so. Like this kind of stuff I do believe is, I, I believe you're right in the sense that like, I think the things that we have a hard time imagining we would share are, are going to be pretty easy for our kids and grandkids. My, the difference to me between an economist and an entrepreneur is about five years. So if an economist can imagine it, that means an <laughs> entrepreneur already did it five years ago. <laughs> so yeah. me, me, 
me imagining sharing a toothbrush is pretty ridiculous, except, and people have pointed this out to me when I've given versions of this talk, a lot of people have electric toothbrushes, and what they'll have is four toothbrush heads and one toothbrush base that they recharge. And so there's four people, all of whom share this the same toothbrush in the sense that the moving part is shared by all four of them. They just replace the top. So families already share toothbrushes. I just wasn't clever enough to realize that. <laughs> when it comes to tools, you don't have to rent. There's a lot of open source software now where you can have a tool library. And a tool library means that I have some tool and I agree to lend it out, provided that other people will also lend me their tools. And we have this software where you can schedule use of it. You get all sorts of different tools for free. So it's not a rental. It's a shared agreement where we are able to solve the three problems of transactions cost that I talk about in the book. And those are triangulation, transfer, and trust. Triangulation means we can find each other. Transfer means that we can actually deliver the product and either pay for it or agree to a time it's going to be returned. And trust means I know that it's not going to be broken. Anything that solves those three problems is a platform. And a tool library, a free tool library that's operated virtually by software, where people each store one tool but have access to 100, that's a sharing arrangement. You know, I read that sentence to my wife about the toothbrush thing and her immediate response was electric tooth. She's like, well, what about electric toothbrushes? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so yeah. uh, she was thinking, thinking uh, one step ahead of me on that one. OK, I, I, I should have said anything that a professor has thought about an entrepreneur or a woman has <laughs> thought about five years ago. <laughs> well, especially when it comes to the kinds of things that I don't know. I mean, she's a mother. So obviously, you know, toothbrushes is part of being a mother because well, of our and kids. Also, and everything, let, so. let me say before you get calls, I'm not saying professors can't be women. <laughs> Uh, well, we don't have a number, so I'm not going to get calls. I might get an email, uh, but now, now I'm not because we're we're being clear about <laughs> being clear about things. Um, so, so the key to problem is transaction cost uh, in a, in a lot of ways, and it in a way you're explaining in the book, and this is why you know at first, and this honestly, I a book about the sharing economy doesn't interest me, yep. but a book that deals with what does the sharing economy mean for the world we're about to live in uh, really does. And that really is more what your book is because the reduction of transaction costs is sort of unlocking more economic progress uh, than simple you know, trade and uh, special specialization of labor. Yes. Now we have to be careful about calling it progress because progress seems to mean that we're moving towards something good. Mm. That may That's be true. What we're heading towards is disruption. And it will be in some ways an advantage because it means that instead of having all of this stuff that we own and store, we'll be better at sharing. And I think sharing generally is unambiguously good. The problem is that many of what the things we now think of, including jobs that are essential to our daily lives and to our culture, are going to be sketchy. It's not so clear that people are going to be able to count on having 40-hour-a-week jobs where they work for the same organization for years. We may instead move to mm -hmm. something like gigs. Uh, we may 
move to things that I can't even imagine in terms of the way that we share instead of buy. The advantage of it is that when I look around in a city, I've actually, this is one of the reasons that my wife finds me so odd. Um, when I look around in a city and then I'll talk about something, I will have seen something that she it would never occur to her to talk about. I look around at cities and a lot of what I see is storage. Why would you want to store stuff? And in the suburbs, there's so many of these storage units. So all, all it is is a metal building with a locking door and I rent that space to you so you can put stuff in there. I think 50 years from now, people are going to look back on the current era and say, not only were people in 2020 selfish, they were dumb. Why is it that they would pay <laughs> to keep all this stuff from being used by someone else when they could have been getting some of that economic value back? Instead of the thing sitting there not being used, it's value that's not being used because someone else could be using it. So there's a company called Spinlister, and this I see this happening more and more at Duke, Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, where I teach. Many of the people at Duke are not from North Carolina. In fact, some people call Duke the University of New Jersey at Durham because <laughs> everybody's from somewhere else. Well, during the summer, Many people have bicycles that they ride during the year because it's a pretty big campus. To get around campus, they have a bicycle. During the summer, you would normally have to pay to store your bike. Now, it's going to cost something like $20 a month to store your bike. Suppose that instead there was some app that would allow you to rent out your bike over the summer. What price would you need to have in order to justify not paying to store it? Well, if you can solve the three problems of transactions cost, triangulation, you can find someone to rent it that's inexpensive and convenient. Transfer, you can actually get the money paid to your account without having to worry about it. And trust, you know your bike is not gonna be broken or if it is, it'll be replaced. If you can solve those three problems, you would probably be willing to rent out your bike for $2 a month. Well, think about that. That means that you made $66 over the three summer months, $20 per month that you didn't have to pay to store it and $2 a month that you got as revenue. So you get your bike back in September, it's fine, and you made $66. You have $66 more than you used to have. Once you start thinking in terms of taking excess capacity and commodifying it and selling it off in a modular way, renting out parts of things that you're not using. So you say, Doug, that you like owning tools. And maybe you're that sort of person who really doesn't want anybody else to use your tools. But suppose that there were someone you could trust who would come and pick up the tool without you having to worry about it and would pay you a considerable amount and you're going to go on vacation for two weeks. Well, you might very well be able to rent your tools out for $200 for those two weeks and to be able to rely on them being returned in good shape. Well, why, why wouldn't you do that? The opportunity cost of storing is the revenue that I can make from commodifying excess capacity. So reductions in transactions cost, 
allow and in fact encourage the commodification of excess capacity and then that excess capacity can be bought and sold in ways that we probably can't even imagine yet. Yeah. And, you know, you know, thinking of me personally, I would be happy to let someone borrow it. But the cost to me is the time of arranging to get it to somebody or any tool for that matter that's relatively portable. So there is the transfer problem, which has its cost as well. And I think a lot of people think of this whole like the development of sharing as like, oh, well, we we're now able to help people find each other. But there's that added component of making it easy because, I mean, I'd be happy to let a lot of people borrow a lot of my tools personally, uh, but it's just too much hassle for me to even let them do it for free right now. Sure. And the, 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 the reason that we need to change our thinking is I, like you, tend to think of these things in terms of problems. They're not. What they are is profit opportunities for an entrepreneur who can figure out a way to solve them. So suppose that, and I, this is the example that I give in the book, the way that the drill gets delivered to my house is an autonomous Uber car. A driverless Uber car goes and picks it up at your house and delivers it to my house. And when I'm done, I put it back in a smart pod in the front of my house, which communicates to the Uber software, it's picked up and returned to your house. You have no idea that this happened, but you made $20. So the, if you store your tools in smart pods where they can be rented out and Uber, which is actually a delivery company, it's not a taxi company. Uber is a delivery company. So one of the things that I think we'll, we'll get to is the claim that I make in the book that many people find surprising, that the comparison of Uber should not be to taxi companies, but to another large company that started out with a very different function, with a very different set of things that it was selling compared to what it's selling now. Yeah, well, I think it's fair to, we could, we could jump to that. The uh, I mean, You're talking about Amazon, right? I am indeed talking about Amazon. In fact, I often ask young people, do you know what Amazon used to sell? And fewer and fewer of them do. The answer is books. Yeah. Amazon's not a book company. Amazon is a platform. Amazon is a, a bunch of software that solves the problem of triangulation, transfer, and trust. I can find someone else who has this product. I can get it delivered. I can get reviews of the product. I can get it returned, and I can get my money back if I'm not satisfied. Anything that does those three things is a platform. One of the first important commercial platforms in the United States was the Sears catalog. The Sears catalog advertised these products that people didn't even know existed. Sears had this elaborate delivery mechanism because it was actually designed to make greater use of railroads. That's the reason the Sears catalog even came into being, was to make more use of the railroads as a delivery system. And Sears would even loan money in order to make the transfer and payment possible. And if you weren't satisfied, you could return it. Fast forward to 1995 or so when Amazon was a book company, Amazon realized there was nothing special about selling books. They were a platform. They could sell all sorts of things. And anybody who wanted to sell stuff, instead of setting up a store in the mall, would just set up a virtual store on Amazon. If I search for it, I find it on Amazon. I can buy it, I can have it delivered, and I can trust it because I can trust the reviews. Uber is actually an excellent competitor for Amazon. So just as Amazon used to sell books but now sells everything, Uber used to provide rental services for transportation. 
But it's a delivery company. It can deliver anything. And in fact, something that's kind of fun, a parlor game, is to get on your computer and then just Google Uber, but for, and then fill in the last word with almost anything you can think of. Kittens, doctors, lemons. Uber will deliver almost anything. Uber Eats will bring bring you restaurant meals. So Uber is a delivery company, and pretty soon Uber is going to be delivering rental power tools. It's already happening in some in some cities. So that solves the problem you very rightly raised. The difficulty would be having someone else use it in a way that is convenient to deliver and get picked up. Uber is going to solve that problem. You know, it's pretty. It's a pretty old saying that middle. You know, you know to cut out the middleman, and yet. I think our my generation and people who are kind of paying attention to the way the economy are going are starting to value the middleman. Do you think do you think that's a good analysis of what's happening? Because I think we all value like, oh, my goodness, that person has just made this easier for me and that they see the value rather than, you know, seeing them as sort of a ripoff. Well, I hear ads fairly often around Christmas time. There's a local jewelry company that says, we buy our diamonds direct from the mines. We eliminate the middleman so that you get the savings. So the idea of a middleman is there's a bunch of people in between that are just taking undeserved cuts, which raise the cost. If we think of the middleman as someone who's providing a service, then yes, we're, we're not as eager to condemn mm-hmm. them. A lot of people who condemn middlemen think of a middleman as someone who is not improving the product in any way. They're just buying it and then reselling it for more. But once you start to think in terms of transactions cost, then yes, middlemen are essential or they wouldn't exist. And so having a middleman means that you have someone who is not just making this a commodity, but also curating it. Middlemen are curating products to give them a context where people can find what they're looking for, to make it easier to find what they're looking for. So if you live in a community, it used to be that there was a kind of free middleman middle man or middle uh, organization that would be down at the community center, and it was called a billboard. You've probably seen this at restaurants where outside people will tape up advertisements saying they provide some kind of service, foot massage or a lost dog. It's a, a, a billboard is a way of providing information. I don't know who's going to look at it, but other people can look at this and say, all right, now I know something about this. Well, a middleman that works on the internet mm-hmm, means mm-hmm. that I don't have to, it doesn't have to catch my eye. I can be searching for it. So once you have searchable text, middlemen became much more valuable because they can just curate, provide a context for the products that I'm looking for. And it means that I'm more likely to look for the products because I know I can find them easily. So we actually rely on, on middlemen so much that they're indispensable. So we're, we're, we're simultaneously doing both things. You're right. We condemn the middleman but we also realize we can't do without them. Many of these apps are just serving as a kind of software middleman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you make the point in the book that the line between middlemen and entrepreneurship is is blurring. What is what What did you have in mind there? Traditionally, an entrepreneur is someone who makes a new product, who sees around the corner and makes a judgment about what the consumers want. So famously, Henry Ford said 
that the reason why he thought he made so much money making cars was that he created something new. If he'd asked consumers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yeah. Because they couldn't imagine a car until they had one that actually worked. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs said that often the only way to find out what consumers want is to show it to them. Yep. Which seems paradoxical. But, you know, I can't imagine this. The act of imagination, that's a creative process that we're usually willing to create to credit. So a lot of people think of Steve Jobs as being a genius. He made a lot of money, but he made these great products. Middlemen are different in the sense that a pure middleman doesn't produce anything. They buy things and resell them. Except that my claim is that what middlemen sell is reductions in transactions costs. So once you think of middlemen as selling reductions in transactions costs, they're different from entrepreneurs. It's true. But the reason the line is blurring is that it takes a lot of crea creativity to sell reductions in transactions costs, to conceive of ways of selling reductions in transactions costs. So that's creative, making this a commodity, whereas before I had no hope of participating in this market because it was too expensive. The transactions costs were too high. That's the reason I think the line is blurring. Some entrepreneurs are middlemen who are finding new ways to sell reductions in transactions costs using apps. So the book is all about transaction costs. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is transaction costs. So uh, let's shift a little bit toward the, the future, uh, because I do want to talk about the basic income guarantee, because you do devote a, uh, several pages to that. Um, but be before we get to that, what are some things that we should expect in terms of, you know, what to what to look ahead for? I mean, people are, you know, there's a lot of people predicting, you know, gloom and doom. Other people are like me, just inevitably assume that it's economic progress. Uh, and so, in, you know, you caught my slip of the tongue by calling it progress. And there's there is no guarantee you were right. Uh, but what what can we expect? Because disruption, regardless of whether it's good or bad, it is disruption. Well, I, knowing that I'm an economist and I don't know as much as entrepreneurs, I did try to fudge this. So I, I came up with two classifications of change and one of them we'll all recognize, it's separation. The other one is a much more rare word, it's saltation. I had never heard that word before your book. Thank you. Saltation is something that actually comes from geology, but it's actually, you can find it uh, in all sorts of contexts as a metaphor. In geology, if there's a river and there's sediment in the river, the heavy sediment will fall out first. And the lighter sediment, sediment will be carried along. And this is actually a principle that's used in gold mining. So what you'll do is if there's just small gold flakes that are buried in the ore, you'll put them in suspension in the water and then run them over a grate, knowing that the gold being heavier will fall out first. So it's really a, a, a you're leaping over. The saltation means to leap over. So it comes from the same root as the French word saute or the Spanish word saltado. So the uh, if you're going to make, if you're in Peru and you're going to make a stir fry, you make it jump around. And so it's a saltado. And when we saute something, we make it jump around. Saltation means that sometimes you're going to be able to leapfrog over existing institutions. So in the Tomorrow 3.0, a lot of developing nations 
will develop institutions that don't depend on existing banks, on existing contracts. They'll be able to use apps to solve problems to get around their corrupt police force, their inefficient judicial system. So what that means is we may see the rapid expansion of less developed nations in ways that will reduce income inequality around the world. If I live in Somalia, I may be able to use an app to get around the problem that it's difficult for me to find a store where I can buy stuff, where I can reliably, without being shaken down by the police, make these purchases. So saltation means that the, there, there may be a lot of jumping around, a lot of disruption, where some of the very poor will manage to leapfrog up to positions of middle class or wealth. However, it's also likely the other kind of change is going to be observed, and that's separation. So that is, if you have a job, what's likely to happen in the economy of tomorrow 3.0 is reduction in price because we'll be able to rent rather than own. I don't have to pay for storage. I don't have to pay to own a bunch of stuff. I can, I can rent things almost for free. So I can use Facebook, I can use Wikipedia, I have all of these things that I enjoy using, I get a lot of benefit from that cost me essentially nothing. So prices are gonna fall. But the result of that is if we have a rental system where instead of 110 million power drills in the United States, we may only need 10 million because we'll be able to rent them and use them more intensively and we'll make better quality commercial drills for this rental market in the next generation or two so they'll last longer. Well, most of the people who have jobs making drills won't have jobs making drills anymore. We'll need far fewer of them because we won't be storing a hundred million of them in our garage at any given time. So the two things that are going to happen is prices are going to fall like crazy and wages are going to fall like crazy. Well, economists have a way of summarizing those two things together, real wages. Real wages are my nominal wage or what it says on my paycheck divided by the price level. So if my, if my, pay goes down, but prices fall by even more, I'm better off. I think that's going to happen to a lot of people. On the other hand, it doesn't matter how cheap things are if you don't have a job at all. So the question is, what are we going to do to try to position ourselves as individuals to take advantage of that new world? And what is we, what are we as a society going to do to take care of our moral obligations and the political problems that are going to be created by having a more or less permanent underclass? There's this problem of separation. If you're not a computer programmer, you're, you don't really have access to the internet, you're not in a position to take advantage of this sort of rental economy, what's going to happen to you? So one of the big proposals is indeed, we have, <laughs> funny, it has the acronym BIG, and this has been sort of bandied around in libertarian circles and conservative and liberal circles as well, uh, the basic income guarantee. And there's a lot of manifestations of it, but could you give us like the, the contours of what what the proposals are often like. And when I say proposals, I, it's not like there's a political proposal going out right now. It's just more people's like big ideas. Well, there are a few places where it has sort of been tried. Alaska has something very close to a basic income guarantee. It's only about $900 or $1,000, uh, but it's an annual payment that you get from participating in uh, the resources and oil that are drawn out of Alaska the citizens of Alaska get paid for. So the the usual rationale for the basic income guarantee is that 
we spend money on anti-poverty programs, and those are pretty expensive. The problem that we have is that it's called by analysts the benefits cliff. That is, if I am poor and I go get a job, I lose my benefits. And what that means is that poor people are not lazy, they're rational. So suppose I'm a single mother of three, I live in Section 8 housing, that is subsidized housing, and I have some food subsidies for my children. If I go out and get a job that pays $12,000 a year, that is a part-time job at minimum wage that pays $12,000 a year, and that's really all I can manage because I have childcare responsibilities, I'm going to lose ten dollars or $12,000 in benefits. So if I get a job, there's no benefit except I have to leave the house to go work now because I lose all of the benefits, the welfare payments I was getting from the state. So what we're doing is trapping people in poverty. We have to find a way to make these benefits not contingent on doing the smart thing. I have an article where I rather provocatively claim that the state is a bad polygamist. That is, the state basically keeps all of these very poor wives provided they don't marry anyone else or get a job. It wants to keep them at home because if the, the things that you do in order to make a better life are either get a job or get married or both. So if, if a single mother does any of the things that you would tell her to do, if you were to sit her down and counsel her, all right, getting married is a really big help to have a, to have a father around for your children and getting a job will teach you responsibility, give you some money. If you do either of those things, you lose all of the benefits that now make your life possible. So we're trapping people in situations that we all understand are unacceptable. So my claim is that we spend a whole lot now on anti-poverty programs. And in fact, if you take the total amount that we spend on anti-poverty programs and divide by the number of poor people, there should be no poor people in the United States. But we don't give them the money. So what I like about a basic income guarantee is we actually give them the money instead of dissipating it on bureaucratic programs that don't really benefit anyone, and we don't make it contingent on them staying poor so that if they do the right thing, if they get married, if they get a job, they'll actually be able to start a life. They'll be able to take the first step or two on the stairway to the American dream. So you you say you what, one of the things you like about it. Is this one of those things where you're kind of still working out how you think about it or, or are you kind of in favor of this generally? I'm definitely in favor of it generally. I've written a lot starting in 2011. Yeah. Now, remember, I'm in favor of it compared to what we do now. Which also means a, re a reduction or elimination in the way we do it now. Well, we have to get rid of all poverty programs. Right. We have to get rid right. of Social Security. We have to get rid of minimum wage. The minimum wage is a disaster for many people who never are able to get the first job to get the experience to get a better job. Yeah. Yeah. We do people a disservice by a lot of the things that we do. I, I think the statistic that you, you just said that, uh, you know, if we just if we just divided by all the poor people, uh, the money that we spend on anti-poverty, we we would we would solve it. Uh, and yet there's still some sort of bias against just giving them the money. 
What about the likelihood that the trade would not happen between a basic income guarantee and the other programs being eliminated? I mean, that's obviously a huge hurdle. Like in theory, I would say, sure, I would I would take that that deal, too, if we could eliminate all these other things. But I mean, come on, you know, politicians, they're not going to do it that way. Well, if you think of that, then that means you're and maybe this is right. It means that no political compromise ever is possible. We should just abandon politics completely and no policy can possibly work. So suppose I said, I think it's a good idea to cut taxes. You can say, yeah, but we're just going to raise them again. Suppose I say that I think it's important to have protections of gun ownership. You might say, yeah, but we'll just have new regulations in the future. Mm. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I know that right now, if you take the total amount that we're spending and divide by the number of poor people, there should be no poor people. I know that if we were actually to give this money to those people, we could eliminate poverty with the money that we're already spending. Yeah. What I like about the program in a way is that it calls out the paternalism of many people on the left and on the right, frankly, because they'll say, well, we can't just give them the money. Yes. You know how they are. Well, no, do tell. How are they? Well, the, the fact is, I think a lot of poor people, if they had some kind of stake, if they had some kind of shot. They don't like being poor. If you were to give them a thousand dollars a month, that does they're not going to say, "All right, I'm done. That's all I need." They would use that money to try to go to finish high school in order to get a job, to get some sort of training. That's not enough to keep them at home. It is enough to to break up the big problem that we have now, which is job lock-in. Suppose someone lives in New Jersey, right across from New York, and they have benefits from the state of New Jersey. They hear that there's jobs in North Carolina or Texas. They would like to move there. But if they do, they'll lose their New Jersey benefits, and they won't be able to get benefits in North Carolina or Texas for at least two years. So they stay in the place where there is no job for two reasons. First, because if they get a job in New Jersey, they'll lose their benefits. And second is if they go to Texas or North Carolina where there's better jobs, they'll lose their benefits. So having the, the, the benefit be a federal program that's transferable means that a lot of poor people who now are ambitious, who would like to be able to build better lives from themselves for themselves, are prevented. Now, maybe you can say we shouldn't be spending this money in the first place. That's fair enough. We are. We already are spending this money. I just want to spend it better. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and you talk about the paternalism. The, the one of the early argument or earlier a few years ago, I came across the basic income guarantee argument, and one of the arguments that's kind of appealed to me, and this had to do with the same sort of you know anti-paternalism that you and I both share, is that. Uh, the people who look down on poor people because they're mooching off the system uh, wouldn't wouldn't be able to do that because they're getting the same check in the, in, in the same way that you know, those in Alaska are all getting the same. But you can't say, well, they're they're just mooching off yep. the system and I'm the one paying the taxes. Well, nope, they are getting the same, you know, the same benefit that you're getting. Um, right. And the, so the the listener at this point might be saying, well, wait, if everybody gets it, can we afford it? It is true that – so I, I think of this as being a negative income tax of the sort that was proposed by Milton Friedman um, or actually a number of other libertarians. 
I, the way that I would have it operate is just increase the amount of the standard deduction. Right now, I think the standard deduction is 7500 on your income tax. Let's raise it to fifteen and make it a credit if you have no income. That means that, yes, I would get it also. We'd have to raise tax rates slightly to make it revenue neutral overall. But it wouldn't be that expensive to pay for because, yes, everybody gets it. And if I lose my job, I would get it as a credit. Now, that's not enough money to say, you know, I quit. I'm going to retire. I'm going to stop being an economics and political science professor at Duke. I make a lot more money than that. So it's not going to be enough to affect me at the margin. It probably will affect some people, though. Some people now who are working for minimum wage probably will go live in their parents' basement and play RuneScape and World of Warcraft. <laughs> but I think a lot of people who are now trapped by the benefits cliff are going to get better jobs. And the difference is the people who are working at minimum wage who want to live in their parents' basement, that's probably what they're going to do anyway. Whereas the poor people that are trapped are going to be the lawyers and doctors and entrepreneurs of tomorrow, the, the really creative people whose talents are now being wasted by a system that doesn't trust them to be able to spend the money wisely. Well, Mike, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I <laughs> we, we could get into the basic income guarantee in a whole other episode. Uh, I will link to on our show notes page some of your writings uh, on that topic. And uh, of course, uh, any other uh, sites that we should visit. If people want to reach out to you or visit, you know, a website, where could they go? Well, michaelmunger.com is where you can find almost everything, including my email address, uh, my Twitter handle, which is just Mungowitz, M-U-N-G-O-W-I-T-Z. And you can find a free economics course, 15 lectures that I gave a couple of years ago here at Duke. Uh, so the, there's a free course on introduction to political economy. You can watch all the lectures. It's absolutely in the public domain. Uh, feel free to look at all or part of those lectures. Use them in any way that you want. The syllabus is there also. So I, I do hope that people take advantage of that because it is in the public domain. It is a free Duke economics course. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us today, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.